0: Welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. So this episode, Father Serge Probst will join me and we'll talk about Paul's letter to the Philippians and how it is that our Lord emptied himself, took the form of man, suffered and died, but rose in glory to the right hand of God. And we'll also talk about some major themes in the Passion according to St. Luke. So please stay tuned. Father reading, the second reading is from Philippians chapter 2, and it says that Christ Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What is exactly going on in the Philippians reading? At this point,
1: St. Paul is professing again, but in a poetic form, a basic tenet of the Catholic faith, which is the incarnation, that Jesus pre-exists, that he in fact is God who took to himself our human nature. Paul is not implying that somehow Jesus ceased to be God in doing this, still remains God, but now as a human being, he can be one with us. It's God's way of bringing himself into our life and into our way of uh, feeling and existing here in this world. So in Jesus humanity I know that God understands in a direct way everything that I go through in my life and in his humanity I see how I can as it were change my own life to live that humanity in all of its fullness and goodness.
0: You know we have the Gospels uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John so why did Saint Paul have to write the letter to the Philippians?
1: Well matter of fact by We're not sure that the Gospels were even written at the time that Philippians was written. And this hymn goes back much earlier uh, than St. Paul's writing to the Philippians. So he's simply bringing us back to earth and what the early Christian church taught, believed, and lived.
0: So Philippians is written. Are you saying that the hymn that is Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 to 10, actually existed before St. Paul's letter? Yeah, I think
1: it really did. I think St. Paul is taking an early Christian catechism that was as in the form of a hymn. Remember, the early church loved hymns. Even today, we sing hymns. But if you look at the words of our hymns, they are expressions of our faith. They're easy to memorize. You can repeat them over and over again. So this is a way in which the essential tenets of the Catholic faith could be passed from generation to generation.
0: So where would you see Christ's pre-existence as God
1: in this reading? well if you look at the sixth verse we're told though he was in the form of god he was god then before he took humanity to himself human nature to himself so he's pre-existing we also find that in fact we talk about after his death on the cross the resurrection because of this god highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name that at the name of jesus every knee should bend those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One of the things that interested me is that use of the term Lord. Lord is a, a Greek translation, Kyrios, for the Hebrew Adonai, and Adonai is a replacement of the most sacred name of God, I am that I am. So to call Jesus Lord is to say that in fact he is God, and as God he would pre-exist and pre-exist everything that is created. So
0: is Paul referring to Jesus' birth when he said, although he had the uh, form of God, he emptied himself and then he took on the form of a slave. What's that referring to? Well, a slave
1: is one who is indebted to someone else. A slave is someone who is under someone else's control. Jesus became like us in all things but sin. and Thus he was under, as it were, the direction control of Joseph and Mary, for example. As a young boy. So he
0: took on the form of man, though he was God. Though he was God. And so St. Paul is acknowledging that Jesus pre existed and became a human being, just like in Luke's uh, narrative of infancy narratives about the birth of Jesus. Exactly. Because, you know, it's always thought it's interesting when you read Luke, Luke is a companion of Paul. So when you read Luke, you're really getting the gospel preached by Paul, exactly. <clears throat> St. Paul. And so there's another part in here, um, just before the part you referred to uh, about exaltation and the name and Lord, which really is about something about the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But it's the Passion and Death that we're going to talk about on Palm Sunday. And so it says that Jesus emptied himself, took on the likeness of man, and then humbled himself and became obedient even unto death, even death on a cross. Why is that essential to Paul's preaching?
1: Because through the death of Jesus Christ, we mere humans are able, as it were, to experience the power of God over death and sin. Jesus died just like all of us are going to have to die but that Jesus rose from the dead means that God has conquered death in Jesus and what he did for his son he is going to do for us. So it's important for us to understand that the cross by itself is incomplete. The cross is understood only in the light of the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. This means now that Jesus has endured everything we can endure. It's like spiritual that nobody knows the sufferings I've seen, nobody knows but Jesus. Jesus had to experience everything, and this was the most shameful, degrading possible form of death at the time. So I have comfort in my own sufferings. I'm going to have comfort at my own death. Jesus has already gone through it first. I'm following him, and he opens the way for me
0: from death to life. So those are really good, a uh, really good understanding of Philippians, especially as we take the time and I lead a reflection on some of the essential aspects of the passion of the Lord according to Saint Luke. So we're gonna to turn to that now. Let's turn to the passion of the Christ as, as it's told in Luke. You know, the passion is the central feature of all four Gospels. And so the story of the Last Supper, the story of Jesus' betrayal, the story of his crucifixion, his resurrection, are in all of the Gospels. John deals with the Last Supper in John chapter 6 when he talks about the bread of life. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are synoptic Gospels, that is trying to give not just the spiritual meaning of what happened, like the Gospel of John does, but to give kind of a sequential recounting events. I mean, at the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel, that's what he says. He wants to give an orderly account of what happened. But one of the things I'd like to point out about Luke's Gospel is how he highlights some of uh, the um, connections between what Jesus does and what happens to Jesus in the Passion and the Old Testament. So the first thing that I'd like to point out, and in all the Gospels pick up on this, is that the passion starts, the arrest starts in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, on the Mount of Olives. Luke is unique in that he doesn't use the phrase Garden of Gethsemane. He talks about the Mount of Olives. What he wants to emphasize is the olive tree. Because in the ancient world, especially the Mediterranean world, and Judaism in particular, the olive tree was the tree of life. And so if you look at some of the Apocrypha, that is the Jewish writings prior to Christ, uh, the olive tree is referred to as the tree of life because it is so essential to Mediterranean life. Not only do you eat its fruit, but you use its wood, and uh, the, the oil that you get from the olive is particularly important in Mediterranean culture. In fact, that phrase, Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane means oil press. And so there are olive trees on this this, uh, mountain. When they're harvested, then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and that's where there's an oil press that they use to extract the oil. So that would be the historical background of this place where Jesus is arrested. But the key here is the olive tree. So let's go back to the Old Testament background, the Jewish understanding um, of the predicament of the human person after sin. So we go to Genesis chapter three, which I think everybody's familiar with. The serpent tempts Eve, Eve tempts Adam, God comes, God curses the serpent and then he pronounces this curse on Adam. Not on Adam so much but on the world that Adam lives in. So this is Genesis chapter 3 starting at verse 17. To the man he said because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bear for you, and shall you shall eat the grass of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground from which you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I wanted to point out that last phrase from uh, verse nineteen because that's how we started out the season of Lent, isn't it? Priest put ashes on your head from a tree, from a, the incinerated leaves and some places it could be olive leaves for us we use palm leaves but that the idea that you start with the curse of adam you are dust and unto dust you shall return but that's not the only thing that god said in that curse here's the key phrase by the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread when you listen to the passion read this palm sunday or if you go back through the passion of luke in luke chapter 22 When Jesus is there and the disciples are asleep, here's what it says, is that Jesus had an angel attend to him and he was in such intense suffering that he literally sweat drops of blood. So now think back to the Old Testament story. Do you remember how it is that God kept the human persons, Adam and Eve, from going back into the garden Do you remember he stations at the entrance to the garden an angel with a flaming sword? So here in the garden of Gethsemane Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives, there is an angel present to Jesus. The curse of the man is that he'll have to eat his bread by the sweat of his brow. Jesus takes that sweat and takes it to an amplified level that he actually sweats blood. And so... In a very key way, what Luke is outlining, what he's emphasizing is how redemption comes to the world through the sweat of this man, Jesus Christ. And he transforms the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane from an angel with a flaming sword to keep him out to in fact an angel that that aids him. And so, what's at the heart of this for Catholics celebrating uh, the Easter Vigil, or celebrating any of the sacraments? Do you remember how oils are used in our church, and they're all oils from the olive tree, uh, which are the trees that are at the Garden of Gethsemane, and in fact, in, in some Jewish traditions, the tree of the fruit from which Adam and Eve ate was not an apple or a pear. But it was the olive tree, because the olive tree again is so central. But we use that oil for the oil of the sick. We use it for the sacred chrism that anoints a priest's head, or anoints you at confirmation, or that was uh, anointed you at your baptism. And then there's the oil of the catechumens, which you were blessed with at your baptism, and still we bless uh, all those coming into the church with the oil of the catechumens. And so that the oil that's pressed from olive trees is now sanctified and used as the sign that opens up uh, paradise to each of us. So that's one point I wanted to point out. The connection between Genesis chapter 3, the olive tree, uh, and then the sacramental practice of the Catholic Church that each of us have hopefully engaged in. And so the Garden of Gethsemane and the oils that we use in Catholic practice. But here's another connection with the Old Testament. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 16, you'll read about the Messiah. And the Messianic prophecies are really at the heart of how all of the evangelists tell the story of Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, which has messianic overtones to it but Saint Luke doubles down on the whole understanding of the messianic prophecies so if you remember the prophet Nathan comes to David and says that God will give him a son and that his uh, kingdom will be established forever and will never fail and so here's Jesus referring to that prophecy at the Last Supper which we read from, from Luke in, um, on Palm Sunday. Here's the part of the reading. You are those who have continued with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned again strengthen your brethren and then he said Lord I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death but Jesus said to him I tell you Peter the cock will not crow this day until you have three times denied that you even know me and we remember how how that turns out for Saint Peter in the in the Passion as Jesus is being tried in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter's really going through his own trial in the courtyard with the servants, where he denies Jesus three times. But the part that I want to focus on is the part where Jesus says that he's been assigned a kingdom, and to Peter he prays that his faith may not fail, so that when he turns again, that is after he's betrayed Jesus, when he turns again, He'll strengthen the others. Does this sound familiar to you? If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, which I think every Catholic knows, do you remember Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But Peter's the one that identifies him as the anointed one, the Messiah. And the word that's used is Christ, Christos, which means the anointed one, which is what the Hebrew term um, for Messiah means one that's anointed with oil, which is this theme of oil which seems to run through the passion of the Christ and through the Old Testament. And then do you remember what Jesus says in Matthew sixteen? Peter, you are a rock that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the nether world will not prevail against it. So compare Luke 22 where Jesus prays that St. Peter will not fail, and Matthew 16, where Jesus names Peter Kephas, which mean, which is Aramaic for rock. The purpose of being the rock or not failing is to be the support of the other apostles. And so this under, underlines the Petrine primacy, the work of the Holy Father in Rome, trying to build unity and fidelity to the Christian gospel, which is the fundamental me- uh, mission of the successor of Peter. And so when we look back on um, Luke's story of the Passion, in the midst of all this chaos and Jesus' crucifixion, this is where St. Peter's ministry is born, according to St. Luke. You know, St. Jose Maria Escrivas had that, and I'm gonna paraphrase, that in difficult times, it's the time of saints. Because on the darkest night, that's when the lights shine. And so, for us, the times when the pope has really failed has been in the fat times. Uh, Where the popes have been great is when the, the chips are down and they have to come forward and stand up for the church and the unity of the church. And so, here's another item that comes out of this portion of the uh, passion of the Christ, and it's what Jesus gives as his um, advice, his commandment to the to the to the apostles, and so. And then he said to them, "This is Luke twenty-two again. When I sent you out with no purse or bags or sandals, did you lack anything?" And they said, "Nothing." Then he said to them, "But now let him who has a purse take it, and likewise a bag." And let him who has no sword sell his mantle and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was reckoned with transgressors. What is written about me has its fulfillment. And then they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. So did you expect Simon the zealot would not be armed? Is it a surprise to you that when uh, Jesus is arrested in the garden Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of one of uh, the attendants, and Jesus heals him. But when Jesus says he's referring to the Old Testament, what is he talking about? How does this understanding of the swords and transgressors go back to the Old Testament? And so you take the time and you go to Isaiah 53, which is um, uh, one of the suffering servant songs. And Luke wants to point out how Jesus is the suffering servant that is prophesied in Isaiah 53. I know you'll remember this because I think we read it on Good Friday. He grew up like a sapling before him, like a shoot from the parched earth. He had no majestic bearing to catch our eye, no beauty to draw us to him. He was spurned and avoided by men, a man of suffering, knowing pain, like one from whom you turn your face Spurned, and we held him in no esteem. And then chapter 53 concludes with verse 12. Therefore I will give him his portion among the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the mighty, because he surrendered himself to death, was counted amongst the transgressors, bore the sins of many, and interceded for the transgressors. And so, how does Luke see the fact that two of the disciples were armed that night? As fulfilling Isaiah 53 because it makes them rebels it makes them rebels against the state they're transgressors and then Luke again takes it even further when he points out that Jesus was crucified with other criminals and so later in the passion you'll remember this about the two thieves one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying are you not the Christ Two points I want to make. Jesus is killed as a criminal with other criminals to fulfill Isaiah 53, which is about that he will be treated with the transgressors. But do you remember how it concludes? He bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. And so at his last moment with the thieves, who's he interceding for? Sinners, transgressors. And so Luke points this out because, again, it's the fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53. But there's one other thing I wanted to point out. Do you remember the first theme I had talking about the Passion, about the Garden of Gethsemane? Do you remember that the fall of Adam happens in the Garden of Eden? The arrest of Jesus happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so, why Luke says, Jesus said, as he forgives this thief, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is the word Aramaic for garden. And so, it's again this constant theme of garden that starts with Genesis 3 and filter through everything that happens with the disciples and Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane to the moment of his death on the cross. And that leads us to one last point that I'd like to make about the the passion of the Lord. And that's about the Sabbath rest. So I think everybody's aware that um, Saturday is the Sabbath. Friday is the preparation day for the Sabbath. The Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday and continues to sundown on Saturday. Um, This is the Jewish Sabbath. We celebrate Mass on Sunday because that's the day of the resurrection, the day that recreation of the world began with Jesus' resurrection. But the way that Luke ends this, um, this story of the Passion, is with Jesus being laid in the tomb and everybody going home to celebrate the Sabbath, which must have been a very uh, sad uh, Sabbath for all of them. But think about how Jesus prepares himself for this. His last words in Luke are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is a psalm of praise that could be prayed on the Sabbath because it concludes um, with God rescuing the man that the the person who prays is not forsaken but is rescued that's how Psalm 22 works out Jesus also quotes another Psalm Psalm 31 into your hands I O Lord I commend my spirit and so the last words are not things that he is ad-libbing he is praying to God as he dies for deliverance and so then he dies and he rests on the seventh day. Why? We're right back to Genesis chapter one, where God w- works through creation on the sixth days, and on the seventh he rests. So think about Holy Week. Palm Sunday is the first day of the week. That's when we read the Passion of the Lord. Holy Week takes us all the way through the following Saturday, which would be the Jewish day of rest. And so the whole story that we act out in Holy Week is all about how it is that God turns sin inside out, turns death inside out, and rescues us. And so there you have it. Just a few points about a very rich reading concerning the passion and death of our Lord as we prepare to celebrate Easter Sunday. A garden, olive oil, Messianic prophecies, and the rest of God. And so this Holy Week, as you prepare for Easter Sunday, think about the passion of the Lord as you prepare to give thanks to God for all that He has to offer us through His Son. Amen.